greetings and welcome to another episode of Fuds and Film. I'm Drew. With me today are Scott. Hello. And Craig. Moan Ben and join the body of the Kirk. As usual, answers on a postcard. <laughs> well, we've not said that one for a while though. You've disappointed us, Craig. No one ever no one ever sends us a postcard. <laughs> What's the point? We've just been speaking about how f- we've just just been speaking about how futile all things are. To be fair, we've never given them the address, so yeah. people may have sent us a postcard and without the address, though, we'll never know. <laughs> Very lucky guess. <laughs> yes, it, it if you could let us know, <laughs> if you could let us know where you've sent it, that would be great. <laughs> so we come to this compare and contrast episode on the back of our Howard Hawks episode, though the film that brought us here wasn't actually directed by Howard Hawks. Unless you listen to certain people involved with the film, in which case it actually was directed by Howard Hawks. Or it really wasn't, according to some, or wasn't, but may as well have been, according to others still. But, well, I'm sure we'll come to that. Yes, we may never know. (laughs) What is certain, though, is that we're looking not at two films, as is usual for this strand, but four. An entire 50% of which even have more than one identifiable character with a describable personality. All of which are adaptations of John W. Campbell Jr.'s 1938 novella, Who Goes There? Who Goes There? is the story of a creature, or thing, from another planet that is able to perfectly mimic other life forms and that causes havoc when it is introduced to the population of an isolated scientific research station in the Antarctic, where it starts a mimicking and a killing. As the population decreases... So the fear, suspicion and paranoia of the survivors increases. I'm sure that sounds very familiar to you. Due to the most famous and most faithful adaptation of the source, John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982. Two of the other films provide somewhat different takes on the novella, with the first, something of a slasher slash monster movie, being an unlikely propaganda piece of World War II, post-World War II America the age of the rise of processed food that presaged the coming of the TV dinner as big ready meals surreptitiously warned consumers of the dangers of fresh vegetables. Tenuous. Tenuous. (laughs) Yes. I'll allow it, but (laughs) final warning. Um, (laughs) The second is like Monster on the Orient Express, a horror film starring two legends of the genre and, for some reason, Telly Savalas, that puts the action on a train and neatly bridges the nature of the previous film and the next, which is Carpenter's, by bringing back a little of the mimicry and making the intellectual threat of the thing considerably more convincing than Hangry Carrot. (laughs) We must also, I suppose, because I really can't see any way out of it, and I've looked, talk about the 2011 (laughs) pre-make. Ostensibly a prequel to the thing, it is, to all intents and purposes, a remake but substantially inferior in every possible way. There's no perfect and indistinguishable mimicry going on here, though I do suggest purging it with fire in any case. To begin with, though, of this story of isolated people being slowly picked off by a creature from the deep, well, the deep of space anyway, uh, we'll go back to Howard Hawks and begin our discussion with The Thing from Another World, which started it all. Craig... Take it away. How does the plot line of this differ from any of the others? So uh, it's a vegetable, which you've pointed out already, <laughs> and that's about it. So the plot of the plot of all three of these films is essentially absolutely identical. 
However, they, 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 differ in, they differ in some respects. I think the big thing that differentiates, differentiates this is that, um, well, first of all, let me say that I was a big advocate for this film previously, and I think when we last spoke about the thing, uh, I was quite enthusiastic about the thing from another world, and I have very fond recollections of my previous experience with it. And I, I went to rewatch it last week for the first time in quite some time, and I've I think it's fair to say I've cooled off on it quite a bit, to be honest with you. It sort of it sits quite comfortably in B movie territory. Although I say that having no notion of how this was marketed or presented or conceived uh, back in 1951, I think. It comes across as rather run-of-the-mill, and yes, the terror it transpires is actually a vegetable, because the (laughs) big mistake that I think this incarnation makes is it does that 50s sci-fi thing of feeling that it has to explain and justify everything to an audience, uh, which just ends up being a huge misstep, because the justification turns out to be absolutely ridiculous, and kind of removes any sort of tension or terror from proceedings. I don't know how audiences in the 50s reacted to this film, whether or not they felt the sort of fear or and or revulsion that uh, the later John Carpenter instalment certainly gave the three of us as youngsters. But I can't particularly imagine at the point at which you're shouting about the, the thing actually being a vegetable that it doesn't have some negating effect on the the psychological (laughs) terror and its impact but um yeah i guess movies then felt compelled to do that and really i think it would be a far better endeavor if everything were left to the imagination and no explanation were were given because quite often fear comes from a lack of explanation uh, and a lack of understanding and I think it would probably fare a lot better under those circumstances. I still quite enjoy it from a sort of camp standpoint and I do think it's tragic that they struggle so much to defeat this vegetable enemy when just a scant sort of 30 to 40 years later cable TV and satellite TV were full of infomercials selling kitchen utensils that would have been great weapons against this menace. (laughs) But um, yeah, it's an interesting artefact certainly and hard to watch it now without a sense of disappointment. I kind of wish I had let this one reside in the memory but that's the the commitment I have to you listeners. I was uh, quite looking forward to seeing this. I hadn't seen it before and I know that this is actually quite a big influence on John Carpenter and films of that era influenced him a lot. And it's one of the reasons he made the remake in 1982. And I just thought it was honestly really dull. This uh, mm. is one of my largest problems with it. I think my single biggest problem though is that it kind of, for some reason, has stripped out the single most interesting thing about the story, which is the paranoia because you don't know who's human or not. Yeah, yeah. That entire story thread is taken out of this so you've got nothing it's, it's a monster beating down the door so oh. it's, it's replaced by a, a, a guy lumbering slowly towards you it's like okay yeah. um, <laughs> not, not and, quite the same effect on it really so and the other things when you have the 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 well, i think one of the key things about it is that while it's a monster and appears monstrous in certain situations to humans it's always remarked on about it being intelligent because in some of the other adaptations it'll try to you know hide traces of itself it's because it doesn't want to get caught it wants to survive and thrive and leave the planet or infect the planet whatever it is in whichever case and well largely it just wants to be left alone to go (laughs) in peace 
So another one's like you, you believe the intelligence that it's, a, it's an alien intelligence, but it's it's a smart thing. It's hiding. It's um, it can build spaceships apparently. So you know it is smart. And in this is like they keep on pressing on about how intelligent is, and it, it completely outstrips our intellect. It can bang down doors. It's all it did. Yeah, yeah. those big meat hands that are so great at just smashing doors to pieces, you can see how they put together uh, an elaborate uh, mechanical interstellar travel device, you know? Yeah. I, I yeah. think if you were if you were able to... If, if the film was able to kind of deliver on the promise of what all the scientists were saying at the time, then it would, could have been a good film, but essentially at the end of it, it's just Frankenstein um, lumbering mm. towards people with occasional trips to the greenhouse. Uh, yeah, I, but I mean... Frankenstein is is a tragedy oh, because the oh, so is this in a lot of respects. Well, yes, but not in the same way because <laughs> Frankenstein's monster, the creature, is a tragic thing. He's kind of created and didn't want to be. He's um, no parents. There's no way to get love, and it's, it's a very tragic story. Whereas and this is like there's a big walking carrot coming through the door. Mm. Okay, mm-hmm. I mean, and there are some genuinely creepy ideas still in there like the idea that he's taken two of the people strung them up basically as blood bags mm-hmm. uh, to drain them of blood to feed the the seedlings basically that have come from the the bo- its own body and like you don't see that i guess maybe you're expecting to see that in 1951 it's not sensible not reasonable but it's like so there are some kind of creepy ideas in there but then it's like no i no, just it battered down the door it's like oh Okay, and if I cared about a single character, well, I say if I cared about a single, there is a single character. There's the idiot scientist, Dr. Carrington, and some people. I don't remember any of them apart from the guy who really, really can't act. The guy that plays the captain who seems to be in an incredible hurry to deliver all of his lines. Kenneth Toby. Just doesn't let any, like, most of the film doesn't really let any dialogue breathe, but him in particular, he starts off, they're in the why this film needed a setup for them getting out of there, I've no idea. Hmm. Uh, no, i tell you what else I'm not sure why, why it needed it, Drew, and again it relates to Kenneth Toby and his weirdly anodyne delivery and interaction with everything is the love interest they try to set up between his character and Margaret Sheridan's character Nikki, I think the sort of secretary at the station, the the uh, I'm not sure what role she's fulfilling, I'm not 100% clear. She seems to be there at the Arctic just to hammer away on a typewriter for some reason. Yeah. Um, and they are set up as having had this sort of uh, perhaps previous relationship or something, but it's all weirdly clinical and anodyne and um, also, it doesn't relationship, amount. Relationship yeah, it doesn't, been, he was groping her. It's like, it was yeah. okay for me to grope you because I really liked you. Well, that's where that comes down to. Yeah, pretty much. But it's also, it's just, it's it's for nothing as well. It doesn't develop into anything yeah, and there's no there, payoff. There were no characters. Um, and, I mean, when there's a threat coming in, you recognise her because she's one of the two women that are there. So, it can, like, you tell the difference. Everybody else is basically the same person. Uh, yeah, like, there's there's no reason for... Uh, there's no characters. Oh, what's his name? Yeah, there's no reason for Ned, the the newspaper guy, the journalist. There's no reason for him to be there. No, no you know that's I mean, like, he, he's man with glasses. Basically, he doesn't really have a <laughs> a character. That's my, my, one of my big problems with this film is like there there are no memorable characters apart from Doctor Carrington, mm. the supposed scientist who makes the irrational, stupid decisions, mm. um, which is it's kind of intellectually offensive. But going back to Kenneth Toby, and just when in the like officers mess or whatever it is at the start and they're playing cards it's just like he starts one of his first lines they're playing cards his opponent 
uh, it's opposite player puts down two queens. It was two queens. It was, uh, that's what I thought to Aces. That's how he delivers it, and his delivery doesn't change much for the rest of the film. <laughs> It's like he's in a desperate rush. It's like when he's in slightly longer scenes, he seems to slow down a bit, but he just seems to have been in a rush to get it out. And yeah. there's nobody else really acting any better than that in the rest of the film. Mm. Uh, so, yeah. And then just, it, it's weird. It's, if, like you're saying, Scott, like it feels like it's trying to have to explain things a lot. And it seems like it, it's trying to suggest like there's some sort of scientific basis and they're talking about oh no you're scoffing at this being based on a vegetable but think of all these plants that catch Eat meat insects and, things. and stuff yeah they, they don't do it through smarts folks but okay no. um but then they don't they don't do it by kicking indoors <laughs> but they seen people when they when they go to find the spaceship buried in the ice and they go the geiger counters at the maximum well, let's definitely all go down and walk into that then. That seems like a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you understand what Geiger counters do? I'm guessing I not. Think, I'm glad I'm glad you brought up Carrington because he was at least sort of vaguely interesting. Uh, Robert Cordway does quite a good job of making him that sort of ambiguous uh, scientific archetype who might be a force for good, might be a force for evil, as it turns out, just as apparently completely nihilistic. He delivers about the only interesting uh, aspect of the movie is where he tries to convince them all that, well, look, uh, in a choice between in a choice between killing this thing and allowing ourselves to all be killed, we'd be doing mankind a disservice if we don't all allow ourselves to be <laughs> to be murdered. And there's like, well, okay, so there's at least a kernel of an interesting uh, debate to be had there. But again, nothing comes of it. So yeah, and it's like other films have had that kind of idea, like a scientist becomes so enamoured of the the beauty of the mm. specimen. Like, look at the. The Xenomorph and Aliens or something's yeah. a couple of cards in that series it's like oh, this is such a thing of beauty but he's kind of come to this conclusion in about 72 minutes yeah um, he's, like, he's come to this conclusion because at the time there was a lot of people who were worried about science and so <laughs> so therefore he needs to do this because he's tired I think was the excuse <laughs> I think um, that's pretty yeah. much it yeah also yeah it's like that character just stuck out to me in so many ways. A very strange costume choice that this doctor, who's dressed as a sailor mm-hmm. for some reason, with pyjama bottoms on. I mean, I assume they're <laughs> meant to be some sort of insulated warm trousers, but they read completely as PJs. Like, what? Yeah, I can't listen, don't be, seriously. Don't be, no, don't be dissing Carrington's style, man. That is red hot on trend. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, since I watched this film last week, I've been to our head office twice wearing that exact same outfit and been complimented on it. Yeah, it's just, a, it's just a weird thing. It's just a weird artifact, actually. And I'm, I'm kind of, uh, yeah. I wish I'd left it just to, like I say, I wish I'd left it just to reside in my memory where it was perfectly comfortable and I had enjoyed it a lot. But that's what I guess fifteen to twenty years of space will do for you i got a little more out of it than you two guys this time i'd not seen this before and it was i thought at least vaguely interesting um the primary criticism we've already covered in ad nauseum that the threat is not particularly threatening or convincing um but other than that i liked a lot of it i didn't mind the dialogue being so quick fire and sort of running over the top of each other and it still had enough kernels of Hmm. what you liked from the thing to kind of make it at least 
interesting in that regard. Um, but at the same time, I, I can't really recommend anyone rush out and see it. It's overall mm. not enough fun, really. Um, and ultimately, the threat's just not strong enough to really compel you to the end of the film. Um, it doesn't outstay its welcome, I suppose, so it's easy enough to get through if you did want to do it, out of curiosity. But yeah, I wouldn't make it a priority. You you touched on, sorry, just before we move on, you touched on something briefly there, Scott, that actually I was I, I noted the other night, and I'd almost forgotten to mention it. Um, you're saying about people sort of talking over each other and whatnot. That, that really stuck out on this viewing for me. There are a lot of conversations where people are talking over each other, and I don't think it's necessarily a Sorkin-like choice. Do you... Th- do you think that is by design or do you think that a lot of this was just listen we've got one take to do this in <laughs> and if people um, have fluffed the timing on their lines i really wasn't sure i I'm really sure, wasn't sure i mean it happens so much like all the way throughout it that it seems to have been a design choice rather than an, mm. a continual accident because i'm sure at some point they might have noticed this and told people to take a beat if they were intending to have this you know have dialogue delivered as is normal in films where people stop and the next person starts um, just to aid audience comprehension, even if that's not completely realistic, because in real life people do talk over each other as as we often do. But, you know, uh, yeah, I'm sure it must have been a decision because Hawks has, um, well, in particular, has previous with this because um, his girl Friday had a fair amount of this kind of um, quick-fire dialogue running into each other mm-hmm. as well. So I'm expecting it was a choice rather than a accident. Yeah. But It was Cisco Friday, exactly. I was thinking about Scott's, like, wonder if that was the Hawks' influence. But in Cisco Friday, it's, again, it's a back and forth. It's a quick-fire back and forth. Here, mm. it's like everybody's just saying their lines at the same time. Yeah. Mm. So I mean, whether that's trying the same thing with considerably less competence from the actors is possible, or from the director, but it's... It might, have been the, it might have been the intent, but the script just isn't smart enough to really warrant no, having this kind no. of you know, banter going through it, if you like. It, it's weird, though, given that the script did come from Charles Leder and um, uncredited work again from Ben Hecht. Like, there's really talented people involved with this behind the camera, so I'm not quite sure how it got so wrong on camera. Mm. <laughs> Strange, like, whether it was a case of... If Hawks was sort of directed by proxy and things are getting lost in translation there, or uh, I don't know, it's weird. But I, again, the biggest feeling for me is just that they, like they stripped out the paranoia, which is the entire point. So yeah, it's just a completely useless film from that regard. Will we move on though to Ra Ra Rasputin, Monster of the Russian Train? Yes. Uh- <laughs> Now, when I reached the end of uh, the novella, Who Goes There?, I was informed by a bit of blurb at the end that it had been adapted into films three times only. This, I feel, entirely unfairly erases 19, from history 1972's Horror Express, or Panico en el Transiberiano, oh, um, a Spanish production that is very loosely based on the novella. Uh, <laughs> It's helmed by spaghetti western stalwart Eugenio Martin, and this sees anthropologist Christopher Lee's professor Sir Alexander Saxton, what a name, discover <laughs> what, what he believes to be the missing link in a cave in Manchuria. And what with this being 1906 and air freight not being so much of a thing, clearly the only thing to do is crate up the corpse and load it onto the Trans-Siberian Express. There he runs into his frenemy, Peter Cushing's Dr. Wells, at which point you might be getting some very strong hammer horror vibes, which, of course, was very much the intent. Consumed with curiosity, Dr. Wells bribes a train guard to drill into the case to find out what Saxton has found, and said guard naturally soon shows up dead, with a killer creature on the loose, and, well, broadly, you know how this story goes. The oddest thing about this adaptation, and it has some strong competition in this category, um, might 
just be what it chooses to focus on from the novella. While our thing here uh, can for sure uh, assume the form of the people it kills, it also retains the glowing red eyes and weird telepathic powers of the novella that other uh, adaptations sensibly saw fit to remove. I suppose it makes sense of a sort that a shape-shifting imposter should also have a mechanism to fit into that shape more completely, although why said brain drain should also turn the victim's eyes white is left unsaid, as is the penchant for leaving one hairy arm untransfigured most of the time, but who am I to doubt the science? I'm no <laughs> monsterologist. The changes to the source material are just as peculiar for this pellicula. You could, if you squint a bit, see the tundra of Siberia as equivalent to Antarctica, and I suppose you could argue the trade is nearly as isolated as the research base, if altogether more opulent. But other than there being a touch more luxury, it's barely a factor in the script, and indeed it appears was a decision made purely on the basis of having picked up a train set at a knockdown price, <laughs> and also a model train set for the special effects. No, it, it turns out what the story really needed to push over the edge and I'm surprised Carpenter didn't run with this, is a conflict between a Rasputin expi, Alberto de Mendoza's father Pujarov, and a scenery-chewing Telly Savalas as a vodka-gargling Cossack whipping said Rasputin expi. This is the greatest film I have ever seen, <laughs> and I will not accept your kink shaming. Not really, of course, but it is a thoroughly ridiculous film that had a great deal of fun ridiculing. There's some early doors stuff that's a bit dodgy, it's leaning a bit too far towards the yellow peril end of things, and it maybe takes a touch too long to make peace with how silly a concept it is and start poking fun uh, itself. Um, you know, like that part where Lee's and Cushing's characters are asked, but what if one of you are the monster? And the reply from Cushing is, monster? But I'm British, you know. Although I'm not sure the Spanish are best placed to be lecturing about colonialist attitudes. Anyway, if you take this film seriously, you will have a very bad time of it. <laughs> so I recommend that you do not do that. To be clear, it is not any good at all, falling below even the worst of the hammer horrors that it's styling itself after. But it's a diverting, weird, alternate universe take on the source material that I'd say is worth a look for diehard fans of the Carpenter film. Yeah, I went into this not expecting much at all and i'm surprised to find i actually quite enjoyed it it's a lot uh, of fun it's really um, really dumb but it's a lot of fun yeah uh i mean for a film with a budget of three hundred thousand dollars it looks like a proper film oh yes it, it does actually look quite nice um mm. and a couple of the big stars of the genre there christopher lee's always um prevented to watch I mean, you'd listen to them for like hours <laughs> yeah. and hours he's just got such a great voice uh, you know, it's entirely silly, but it's kind of fun, and I kind of like that they drop. Even though it's like set in nineteen oh six, and they kind of rearrange like some of the science, like fit understanding at the time. Mm. It does bring it back a bit of the science fiction of it that's it's conspicuously absent in a lot of um, the thing from another world. Mm. And certainly, there, there's a the paranoia there. It's not the same level as in the thing from nineteen eighty two, but there is like. I mean, just even just like as a murderer on a train and are confined, can't get off in the middle of Siberia. You know, there, there's that kind of like panic there. There's like the idea of like, who's the murderer? We don't know. People keep turning up dead. We think we've we caught the monster, etc. Yeah. And I mean, the I mean, most of the science and the science fiction horror um, story is nonsense. But kind of interesting ideas of like the eyes actually being what contains the memory and like being able to see things. There's kind of interesting wee twists there. Yeah. And then Telly Savalas is a um, racist Cossack for reasons. Fine. <laughs> okay. Why not? Yes. Clearly the best character in any film. And, and the way it's revealed too, it's like he's inside the, the station. 
the station master's getting the ticker tape coming in about the time of the train coming in. Mm. And suddenly, inside a cage, or at least behind some bars, <laughs> it looks like it's inside a cage, Telly Savalas is underneath a blanket with a woman. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fine. Uh, I'm watching this too, like, he's, like, he's clearly a Russian nationalist and he doesn't like... He's like on the lookout for rebels. That's kind of why he stops the train. He seems to think they're probably revolutionaries, commies, probably, because it's 1906 in Russia. Um, yeah. And I, I'm watching this thinking, this is mental. So yeah, I'm on board. Great. This makes no sense. And it's great because Telly Savalas is terrible, but he's kind of entertainingly terrible in most things. <laughs> and I'm, I'm starting thinking, like, is this film meant to be some sort of critique of early 19th early 20th century russian politics like <laughs> i'm probably reading too much into this but is it in the in like the dying days of franco's regime is this some sort of comment on communism or is it support for communism and um against the fascistic um Zarist regime like uh franco had like no, no, it's probably just stupid. I should probably stop thinking about that and enjoy the yeah. stupid instead. <laughs> I'm guessing it's because they need some kind of excuse for the reason that Telly the Fallis is only on, on set for two days. So we need to keep him out of the film for at least 60 of the 90 minutes it runs for. So that's, yeah. that'll do. <laughs> so I'm wondering how much of the $300,000 Telly Savalas walked away with. Um, yes. Although, Telly Savalas Zombie. Not seen that before. That was definitely No, new. that was a new one, yeah. <laughs> um, and then, I was going to... Just got a couple of amusing points in the casting in terms of the way people look through it, like, especially with Telly Savalas and having been in on Her Majesty's Secret Service. But for some reason, this film has cast not Jane Seymour and not Diana Rigg. Yes. <laughs> I'm wondering whether that was deliberate or not, that these people looked so like them. The non union Spanish equivalents, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, I mean, it's not a great film, but I enjoyed it a lot more than all of these films, bar the John Carpenter one. Yeah. And uh, it's quite a surprise actually because I thought hmm 1970s horror film I'm not going to enjoy this and I, oh wait I did horror and couldn't really get enough inverted commas around it but uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's like a silly fun film with Telly Savalas zombie yeah. I'll take it yes it is good um, I'm glad you liked it I was I was worried we'd get in a fight about that because yes good good I'll well, see so, yeah. I'm glad we both saw that that was clearly Rasputin. Yes. Which is great. I don't think it's trying to hide that fact from us, to be fair. No. (laughs) Shall we clash onwards then to the reason that we were having any of this discussion at all, I suppose, which is John Carpenter's The Thing from 82? Yes. um, After a brief shot of a flying saucer plunging into Earth's atmosphere, pretty much the only thing about the thing I really dislike, as it's redundant given later events, we're dropped immediately into action as a helicopter chases a dog across a snow-covered plane, the helicopter's passenger attempting to hit the dog with a rifle. This presents a threat to the crew of the US Antarctic Research Station that both a dog and helicopter soon reach, though not, as it may at first seem, from the crazed Norwegian firing haphazardly across the camp. Among the inhabitants of this camp are Gary, who's the nominal commander, but he clearly does not command the respect of those under him, being considered something of a joke. Rather, most seem to defer to the gruff but competent McCready. There's also the stoner Palmer, the spiky and potentially dangerous Childs, hippie-ish radio guy Windows, Knowles the Cook, the caring Dr. Copper, Clark, 
whose compassion clearly lies with the quadrupedal denizens of the station rather than the bipedal ones, and the slightly crotchety biologist Blair. Some characters, to be fair, are less well-defined. Norris is kind of forgettable. Fuchs is in danger of reading as the one who looks a wee bit like Steven Spielberg. But within 10 minutes, we know everything we need to know with a minimum of exposition. We know each person's role. We know that the roles in this camp are well-established. We know the routines are well-worn in and that they've been there for quite a while. We can identify a number of individuals quickly and easily and their personalities are distinctive as is the dynamic between them. It's superbly efficient and underpinned by really great casting and performance. And then we can then just get on with the business of the group, realising what they're dealing with, and trying to come up with strategies to survive it. Nobody does anything stupid, and there are certainly no scientists making mind-bogglingly irrational decisions, and no unnecessary fat, like explaining their journey to the research station, both of which two of the other adaptations have. Which is nice. The whole film is... Well, it's marked out by a complete lack of fanning about, either from the characters or the screenplay. Instead, there's just pretty much relentless tension, a menacing and unsettling score, fantastic lighting and cinematography, which looks particularly good in either of the new Blu-ray restorations, and some superb, often peerless creature effects. It remains the definitive adaptation of the story. Yeah, I was a bit surprised when I watched this, because... I didn't need to watch this again for this film. I've seen it enough times. There's at least half a dozen in the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years, whatever it would be. Um, and I was getting to the point in the first you know, 10 to 15 minutes where I was like, oh, I'm, I'm just doing this as a formality. And I was twittering away on Twitter or whatever I was doing at the time. And God damn it, after about 15 minutes, if this hadn't just sucked me back into paying full attention to it again, it's just an incredibly well-made film. Um, <laughs> just when you thought you were out. <laughs> dragged me right back in but yeah it's just uh, just all these the effects the effects work is so good and you know we'll get to that in the remake but it's just so <laughs> convincing in this isn't it it just, it just feels like some really gross horrible body horror thing that's going on and it's, you just can't take your eyes off it even how disgusting and horrible it is it's great love it and uh, yeah i agree with Laura. It's, just, it's, just a, it's a very efficiently made and really well done film yeah but also the, the effects work is so good but I think people kind of get hung up on that a bit and they're like, it's like that's what the film's about. But there are mm. huge stretches where there's no effects. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's just some guy standing around. And there's some of the tensest scenes of all. I mean, the tensest scene in it is a guy holding a hot wire in front of some blood <laughs> for a lot yeah. of it. So, yeah. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And, like, and, and that is so well done. Like, there's a fake hand, but it's you see it for a few minutes beforehand so it's actually I mean it reads doesn't actually read that well as a fake hand I kind of had to be told that mm. and I think if I looked closely maybe but I'm more watching Kurt Russell's face but you've got this fake hand that's put in early in the scene so it doesn't immediately say oh something's going to happen with this like watch yeah. out and then you just watch this and it's so tense there's no creature effects till the end of that scene and it's yeah as you say it's got it's a man holding a bit of hot copper wire yeah um <laughs> And it's one of the tensest things in any film. <laughs> it's it's so well done. Like so, the, the creature effects when they're there are great, but it's it just does so much with so little. Really, it's an incredibly efficient film. My favourite thing about the the, the thing, um, aside from the effects work, which is great practical effects work, and it gets away with not looking, you know, 
strictly realistic by virtue of the fact that the concept is so fantastical to begin with. It's like what what does a half formed alien that's taking on the shape of a human being look like when its head detaches from its body and sprouts legs? <laughs> you know, probably looks like it does. There, sure, sure that I can see that's made of latex, but who's to say that the alien doesn't look like latex? So it kind of it kind of gets a get out of jail free card there. But it's the atmosphere that the film builds that really gets me and um, I, I didn't revisit it on this occasion but I, it's one of those films that as soon as you start talking about about it with people you just feel compelled to go and watch it again <laughs> sometimes you just need someone to mention it to you know to have the excuse to do so but it's the sound design and, uh, and I was really surprised Drew to go back and listen to the podcast from a couple of years ago when two three years ago when we last spoke about John Carpenter and that you were so down on like Carpenter's score because to me that is really key in building the atmosphere have you come around on that a bit well, then or yeah, because is I it honestly still- don't remember saying that because I thought the score this time was fantastic um I don't know mm. maybe I, th- I I think it may have come with having watched so many John Carpenter films together at the time mm. and I was, you know, just was kind of fed up of the style because yeah there's a, a sameness to them uh, but no this time yeah. um, like the, the sprinklings of the Ennio Morricone stuff that survived and yeah. then the actual the Carpenter basic uh, synth stuff yeah. it's just it's always there and it's just you're not always aware of it which is the whole point of it it's like John Carpenter's well known for um, wanting his scores to be like wallpaper supposed yep. to create an atmosphere you're not supposed to see them or obviously yep. hear them and it works it's just like the dum dum exactly kinda, the relentless uh, bass yeah it's got a a score that works kind of like john williams jaws score yeah um, mm-hmm. it's not quite as it doesn't flag up stuff quite as much i don't think but it's got that kind of just that low level dread throughout um mm. to the point where i really appreciate the score this time um and had forgotten that that was my opinion in the past, so that's quite interesting. <laughs> so it's absolutely just- still to this day one of my favourite sort of marriages between score and uh, cinematography. I just think it's a phenomenal exercise in atmosphere and, and tension. And like you could take out, you could take out a lot of the creature effects and a lot of the gore scenes, and I would argue this film would still work just as well. Um, yeah. Or at least almost as well. It's almost the the, the sort of uh, the the uh, animatronic work and the, the physical uh, effects work is just this unbelievable cherry on top that I don't think I don't think I've been entertained by effects work any more than I have in this film, uh, mechanical or otherwise. I just I just think it's I just think it's always going to be uh, the inventiveness of it and the the design of it and just the sheer sense of revulsion it creates. I just think it's I just think it's a high watermark for for effects work full stop. Yes, yeah, it really is. That's why I said it's in many cases I think it's absolutely peerless. Um, mm. and it's so much aided by just like some really incredible cinematography and the lighting too because it's like it's lit in such a way that it's kind of making the puppetry and the the different maquettes and what or not like there's no harsh lighting on them so mm. you, it's not immediately like, oh well just a bunch of rubber with some like slime over or something but at the same time as well as the lighting making that work it also the lighting at the same time is suiting the the setting and the mm-hmm. action too so you've got like these creatures sort of half in darkness so you, 
and it all just works together so well. And I don't know, it's just, it's such an incredibly well-lit film, and I don't think I'd appreciated that quite so much before. Um, I'm I just thinking this... New Investigations, because they look so good. I was going to um, say, um, I, one would assume they are there's an HDR component there, because I'd be interested to see how that works now, particularly in the shadow. Um, to think to go back to a film 40 years old and, and want to revisit it uh, visually, don't, just don't for that. Don't say that. Don't say it's 40 years old, Craig. I hadn't thought about that all day. Please don't say I know. that. <laughs> Isn't that mental? That's frightening. Yeah, it's, it's just so... I use the word again. It's efficient. It's so efficient and everything just so well done. And it's been a relatively low budget film and it's it doesn't have big stars. And it's certainly Kurt Russell in nineteen eighty two wasn't a big, big star. It's, in many ways I think it probably still comes under B movie, but it's superb. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it it's good that it wasn't remade by somebody who completely missed the entire point of the whole film, isn't it? That that's good. I'm happy with that. Presumably talking about the 2011 remake, which is not a remake, sort of, technically, as it's set in the Norwegian base, Thule, as shown to us uh, in already devastated former Carpenter's outing. Uh, however, it's also hewing very close to the same concept, so a prequel make, perhaps, is the best term for it. In this, uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead's Kate Lloyd, a paleontologist, takes point in most of this film, having been recently recruited to the base by Ulrich Thompson's Dr. Sandra Halverson, the expedition leader and all-round jackass. Uh, she's called to upon to excavate this weird frozen alien things, and well, by this point, I think you all know how that goes. I think the most telling thing I have to say about this version is that having watched this two days ago, as we're chatting, any fine detail has already fled my memory entirely, and I suspect the broad details will have gone within a week, so that's hardly a good sign for it. However, I would say um, that for about two-thirds to four-fifths of the film, I was enjoying it well enough not to be upset by it. Uh, the cast is pretty decent, and um, Mathigius Van Heijeningen Jr. keeps things whipping along well enough, aided by a Marco Beltrami score that follows the rest of the movie's template for just copying the bits of Carpenter's version that worked. Uh, but my one mild criticism at that point would be the switch to CG monsters over the practical effects, and I suppose I understand the budgetary constraints. Adjusted for inflation, this is broadly the same budget as Carpenter's, uh, but they certainly managed to look less imaginative, less disgustingly disturbing, and crucially, much less part of the same world as the actors. Now, which, to be fair, is an almost universal criticism of less than excellent CG effects. So I might have let that slide, were not for a final act, where the budget clearly did not stretch to. Um, in particular, there's a shot of um, a couple of characters running over the top of a spaceship that looks like it was a rear projection, and it all just gets a bit Robocop 3 by the time you get to the end of it. And <laughs> Oof, harsh, harsh, but I think fair. While that's arguably nothing a bit more time and money couldn't fix, there's a more fundamental problem with the film, and I believe this was more or less the consensus opinion at the time, so no words for originality here, but there's just no reason for this film to exist. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think you go so far as to say that it's bad or a disgrace to the memory of the original or anything like that. It's just, on its own merits, a very average film that's aping a version that is better than it on every axis I can think of and doesn't add anything to the formula apart from making it a bit less of a sausage fest. I, I, I don't know if I'd necessarily warn anyone away from watching this. I mean, t- taken overall, it's 
just about competent enough, but it is by far the least interesting alternative version that we've spoken of, and it's also the least alternate alternate version that we've spoken of, and as such, you'd be better served by just watching the Carpenter version again. Yeah, the fundamental problem with the film is there's no reason for it to exist, and it doesn't provide one in any of the text of it. It's just they thought they could make a bit of money by remaking the thing, and they didn't, so... Ne luck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of in the same camp as you on this one, Scott. Like, I don't actively hate the film, and I don't think it necessarily deserves the complete panning it, it got because it's not that offensive. I do think it's just a, a factor of people uh, caring so much about the original that it was never going to live up to that. And if it had been any other film, it probably would have people would have just gone. Eh. But because it was because it was aiming as high as the thing, um, and it, it dared sort of molest that sacred cow, then there was always there was always going to be that backlash if it was anything less than perfect, as as you speak of the CG. So we so we may speak of the film overall. Yeah. But yeah, I don't actively dislike it. I've always we've spoken before about the fact that I just generally I think most of us agreed that we we've got a lot of time for Mary Elizabeth Winstead as a yeah. as a screen presence and um and Joel Edgerton uh, is is you know a, a talent to be reckoned with often as well but no one's been particularly well served by this film i just think it's misconceived from the very start the the entire purpose for its being seems to be to ex- explain just little dioramas from the first movie where you'll come across a scene and all of a sudden you'll realize you know the movie shoves in your face do you remember when they found that thing in the thing <laughs> do you remember when they came across this little scene this little diorama well look i've explained i've explained how that came to be and it's like well that's great but that's not a reason to exist as a movie Um, (laughs) and to set itself up as a prequel but to not actually bother to do anything different and really just to follow every beat and every moment of the original in the first place puts it in this weird territory where it's both a prequel and a remake and that you know even as a thought experiment that doesn't work so yeah, it's just a it's just a really weird decision. Like I say, I'm not actively offended by it. I actually own this on Blu-ray because one time when I was in Middlesbrough, I saw it on the shelf in HMV for three quid, and it's got a director's commentary. And I thought to myself, I'll pay three quid to hear what your thoughts were when you were making this. Um, and I don't remember anything of that commentary. So <laughs> this film is absolute garbage without a single redeeming feature. So um, I feel quite strongly about this film. <laughs> I hate it. It's awful. Uh, I really mean that. It's not a single redeeming feature about it. I, th- I, mean, I don't remember Mary Elizabeth Winstead being this bad, but she's awful and she's barely awake. Joel Edgerton, who's clearly meant to be Kurt Russell, does not have the charisma of Kurt Russell, at least not in this film. And I get, I've seen Joel Edgerton things, Craig, and thought he was like you know pretty good in a lot of things. Mm-hmm. But in this, he's asleep. It's The effects work actually stands up really well because it was appalling in 2011 it's still appalling now so i guess it's got that going for it <laughs> it's it's a film like prometheus that misses the point the interesting thing about the thing wasn't well how did that guy in the norwegian base end up with his throat cut you know it's like mm. but that's this question is this um, film setting out to answer and it's just it's offensive because it shouldn't mm. exist it it's a question i don't a question i don't want answering because to leave to leave the how and why of that, to my imagination, is infinitely more scary than anything you're going to put on screen. Exactly. It's like, um, did we need an explanation of the space jockey and alien? No. No, we didn't. 
Everything was in our head. Thank you, Ridley. And this is basically doing the same thing. So it's answering the questions nobody wanted answered and nobody needed answered, missing the point entirely. Mm. And then it's kind, of just like, it's kind of offensive when it's doing things like it's just trying to copy the first film or the, the, sorry, or the third film, really, um, the Carpenter film, so completely that I mean, there were some scenes that are straight out copy and paste jobs like there's a moment where at one point the, the thing's attacking someone and then Joel Edgerton who's totally definitely not McCready has a flamethrower that won't fire mm-hmm. and it's, like, it's, it's full of wee bits like that it's like oh here's a reference and no it's not you just copied it badly it's, it's I'm offended by it <laughs> and then yeah, the thing too going back to what I mentioned earlier about the thing is intelligent Right, because when the thing is Blair, it's built a spaceship, and it's tried to set up McCready. It's hiding itself. It's and all these things. In this film, it's like apparently it wants to attack people in the open, and it does everything it can to attack people in the open. Whereas the the thing, you know, the the real the thing, it's like no, no, it's, it only attacks when it's cornered. Because it, how does it help it if it attacks? But that's it seems to go out of his way. To attack people, presumably so they can have some more terrible special effects. Yeah, I hate it. I hate it. I, I think the film has no characters. The acting's all incredibly bad. Mary Elizabeth Winstead's terrible in it. She's the best thing in it. Um, she's like given some really rotten dialogue. And, and then again, my issues with the thing from another world too. It's like, why is there a setup of them getting there? Why was that useful? Who needed to know why they're going there? And also, if we are going to have a bit of showing who got there and why, if these Norwegians are so precious about getting the credit for the discovery, why did they um, fly you know, five, six thousand miles, ten thousand miles even to go and get this American paleontologist? Hmm. No, you can't bring that up and add it in and then not answer that question. So, um, I'm sure that's exactly the way science works too. No, no. Um, we're going to get you to go to Antarctica. You've got to tell us now. I'm not telling you why. That's how things work. Uh huh. No, I just, it's terrible and I hate it and I discourage anybody from ever even thinking about watching it because it's crap. Not that I have any strong feelings. <laughs> it does get points for recycling one thing though, and that's one of my favourite sound effects of all time, which is it recycles the distress signal from the Icarus one from Sunshine which I think was an original effect for that film. I've not heard it in anything else. Maybe they stole it from something else. I don't think it's the, I don't think it's the sound effect equivalent of the, uh, the, the Wilhelm scream or anything. But I just thought it was, I just thought it was nice that it turned up because I've always loved that. Which sound effect's that? Uh, well, unfortunately, I can't recreate it. But it's the sound. It's predicated on the 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 sound of uh, of. Um, sort of distant satellite signals I think from like the Voyager and whatnot sort of being uh, refracted by uh, various stellar elements and stuff like that you get this very sort of haunting echoey sound and at the very end when she's inside the spaceship and she's in that room with the weird sort of shifting cube hologram thing mm-hmm. it's 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 replaying that sound uh, over and over so there you go useless trivia <laughs> I guess that'll wrap us up for two then if you would like to get in touch with us for this reason or any other, then please do so on the old emails at podcast at fudsonfilm.com or on Twitter's at fudsonfilm or facebook.com slash fudsonfilm. Them's the avenues. And until next time, I shall bid you adieu. I'm sure that these guys will be too. I'll feed us in. Bye-bye.